Greetings. Welcome to this week's episode of Story Hour. This episode, we are doing a reading in Greek mythology from the book Classical Mythology by H.A. Gwerber. In this episode, I will be telling a story about Hercules, uh, the ancient hero. Now, you may have seen the Disney movie or heard of the tales of Hercules, but today we bring you the true classical sources of Hercules and his 12 labors. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for listening. Chapter 19, Hercules. Unto this thy son it shall be given, with his broad heart to win his way to heaven. Twelve labors shall he work, and all accursed, and brutal things overthrow, brute men the worst. And in Trachinia shall the funeral pyre, purge his mortalities away with fire. And he shall mount amid the stars, and be acknowledged kin to those who envied thee, and sent these denborn shapes to crush his destiny. The ancients were not content to worship the gods only, but also offered up sacrifices to a few mortals who, by their heroic deeds and virtuous lives, had won both admiration and respect. Foremost among these heroes, generally designated by the title of demigods, is Hercules, also known as Heracles and Eclides, son of Jupiter and Alcimene, a mortal princess. The story of Juno persecuting Hercules. As soon as the tidings of Hercules' birth reached Olympus, Juno began to plot how to destroy her rival's child. Two colossal serpents with poisonous fangs were therefore dispatched by her orders to attack the babe in its cradle. The monsters crept along noiselessly, entered the palace unseen, twined themselves around the cradle, and were about to crush the child to death in their folds, when to the utter astonishment of the helpless attendants, little Hercules caught them fast by the neck in each tiny hand and strangled them, thus giving the first proof of the marvelous strength which was to make him famous. First two dread snakes at Juno's vengeful nod, climbed round the cradle of the sleeping god, waked by the shrilling hiss and rustling sound, and shrieks of fair attendants trembling round, their gasping throats with clenching hands he holds, and death untwists their convoluted folds. When Juno perceived how easily Hercules had escaped from the danger which threatened him, she deemed it useless to make another attempt to take his life, but decided to vex his proud spirit by inflicting many petty annoyances and to prevent his enjoying any lasting peace or happiness. To achieve this purpose, she first extorted from Jupiter a decree that condemned Hercules to serve his cousin Erechtheus, a mean and cowardly prince who ruled over the kingdom of Argos for a certain number of years. Hercules' education was carefully attended to by Chiron, a learned centaur who taught him how to use all the different weapons and trained him in all kinds of athletic sports. The years passed by happily and swiftly, until at last the time came when Hercules' education was completed and the whole world lay before him, full of pleasant possibilities and rich with many attractions. Hercules' Choice The youthful hero, dismissed by his instructor, now set out to seek his fortunes. He had not gone very far, however, before he met two beautiful women, who immediately entered into conversation with him and drew from him a confession that he was in search of adventures. The woman, Ariti, virtue, and Kakia, vice, each offered to be his guide, but bade him choose which he preferred to follow. Kakia, to induce him to follow her guidance, promised riches, ease, consideration, and love, while Arete, a modest maiden, warned him that in her wake he would be obliged to wage incessant war against evil, to endure hardship without number, and spend his days in toil and poverty. Silently Hercules pondered for a while over these two so dissimilar offers, and then, mindful of his tutor's oft-repeated instructions, rose from his seat by the wayside and turning to Arete, declared himself ready to obey any command she might choose to give him. Young Hercules, with firm disdain, 
Brave the soft smiles of pleasure's harlot train, To valiant tolls his forceful limbs assigned, And gave to virtue all his mighty mind. Courageously, he then trod along the rough and thorny path she pointed out, and patiently performed the various tasks she assigned him, delivering the oppressed, defending the weak, and redressing all wrongs. Hercules' Madness In reward for these good actions, he received the hand of Megara, daughter of Creon, king of Thebes, in marriage, and by her had three children, whom he tenderly loved. But Juno was not at all satisfied to see him leading such a peaceful and prosperous life, and to interrupt its even course drove the hero mad. In a fit of delirium, he threw his offspring into the fire, and we are told, slew his dearly beloved wife. Then only he recovered his senses, and suffered agonies of sorrow and remorse for the terrible crimes he had unwittingly committed. In his grief, he withdrew to the mountain solitudes, where he would probably have lingered all the remainder of his life had not Mercury come to get him, and announced that he was to serve Erythrius, king of Argos, for a twelfth month. The messenger god then offered to lead him to his appointed taskmaster. But when Hercules learned he was doomed to be a slave, he fell into such a passion that he nearly lost his reason again, and instead of killing noxious beasts and winning the people's blessings by his deeds of kindness, he wandered about stupidly and aimlessly, until he finally perceived how vain was his attempt to struggle against fate, and urged by his chosen advisor, Arete, voluntarily offered his services to Erythius, who informed him that he must accomplish twelve great labors before he again could be free. The Nemean Lion Eager to begin the appointed tasks, Hercules set out first to find and destroy a monstrous lion, whose den was in the Nemean forest. Far and wide, throughout the whole neighborhood, this monster committed his depredations, carrying off cattle and sheep, men, women, and children, to devour at his ease. All warned Hercules of the danger and difficulty of the undertaking, described the failure of countless previous attempts to slay the monster, and prophesied that he would never return alive. The hero would not be dissuaded, but entered the forest, tracked the lion to his den, grasped him by the throat, and strangled him as he had strangled the snakes in his infancy. He then skinned the monster, whose shaggy pelt became his favorite covering. So from Nemea's den, Achilles strode. The lion's yellow spoil around his shoulders flowed. On his return to Argos to report the successful termination of his first task, Hercules was told to repair to the marshes of Lerna, where lurked their seven-headed serpent, the Hydra, and put an end to its career of rapacity, for the snake devoured man and beast. Armed with a great sword, Hercules succeeded in cutting off one of the seven heads, but he had no sooner done so than, to his dismay, he saw seven other heads suddenly spring from the bleeding stump. To prevent a repetition of his unpleasant miracle, Hercules bade his friend Aeolus, who had accompanied him thither to view his prowess, take a lighted brand and sear the wounds as soon as inflicted. Thanks to his wise plan, the monster was finally slain, although a friendly crab sent by Juno to defend Hydra continually pinched Hercules' feet. The hero, angry at this intervention, crushed the crab, which, however, received its reward, for the Queen of Heaven placed it in the sky as the constellation of Cancer, the crab. The country was thus freed from its long state of thraldom, but before leaving the scene of his second labor, Hercules dipped his arrows in the Hydra's venomous blood, knowing well that any wound they inflicted, however slight, would be sure to prove fatal. The third task appointed by Eurystheus was the capture of the golden-horned, brazen-footed stag of Cernia whose fleetness was such that he deemed scarcely to touch the ground. Hercules was obliged to pursue this animal for many a weary mile before he could overtake him, and he only managed the capture by driving him into a deep snowdrift in a distant southern land from which he extricated himself and carried him home in triumph. Aramanthian Boar The same success crowned his fourth labor, the capture of the wild boar of Aramanthus in Arcadia. 
Attacked by the centaurs during the performance of this labor, Hercules turned his deadly arrows upon them and accidentally wounded his beloved tutor Chiron, who was coming to settle the dispute. Vainly, the hero applied every healing herb. The wound was mortal, and Chiron died, but in reward for his good offices, the gods transferred him to the sky, where he is known as the constellation Sagittarius. Hercules was next sent to Augeus, king of Elis, who had immense droves of cattle. The stables usually occupied by these animals were in an incredibly filthy state, as they had not been cleaned in years. And now Hercules was given the task to remove the accumulated filth and make a complete purification of the premises. Close by these stables rushed a torrent, or rather a river, the Alpheus. Hercules, with one glance, saw the use he could make of this rushing stream, which he dammed and turned aside from its course, so that the waters passed directly through the stables, carrying away all impurities and finally washing them perfectly clean. Nothing else could clean the Augean stables. When Hercules saw that the work of purification was thoroughly accomplished, he guided the stream back to its original bed and returned home to announce that the fifth labor was accomplished. The fabulous filth of the Augean stables and the radical methods employed for their cleansing have given rise to proverbial expressions still in current use. Hercules next journeyed off to Crete to accomplish his sixth task, the capture of a mad bull given by Neptune to Minos, king of the island. The god had sent the animal with directions that he should be offered up in sacrifice, but Minos, charmed with his unusual size and beauty, resolved to keep him and substituted a bull from his own herds for the religious ceremony. Angry at seeing his express command so wantonly disobeyed, Neptune maddened the bull, which rushed wildly all over the island, causing great damage. This was the animal that Hercules, with his usual strength and skill, caught and bound fast, thus finishing the sixth task. He then hastened on to Thrace, where Diomedes the king kept some fine coursers, which were fed on human flesh. In order to obtain a sufficient supply of fresh meat for his horses, Diomedes had decreed that all strangers who ventured into his kingdom should be seized, and when sufficiently fat executed and served up in his horse's mangers. To punish Diomedes for his long-continued barbarity, Hercules fed him to his own horses, which were then led off to Erythius, as a token that the seventh labor was done. Now at the court of Erythius was his beautiful daughter, Admedi a vain princess who delighted in dress and jewels, and who was never happier than when she obtained some new ornament or article of apparel. One day Admedi heard a traveler describe a girdle worn by Hippolyte, queen of the Amazons, and was immediately seized by the desire to possess the ornament. She imparted this wish to Erythius, who, delighted to gratify her as long as he could do so without taking any personal risk or trouble, sent Hercules in a quest of the coveted jewel. The journey to the land of the Amazons, a fierce warlike nation of women, was long and dangerous, but Hercules traveled on undaunted, nor paused, except when his services were needed in furthering some good work for mortals. Till he reached their land, presented himself before their queen, and boldly explained the cause of his presence. Hippolyte listened to his explanation and request with queenly condescension, promised to consider the matter, and in the meanwhile bade him feast and rest in her palace. Hercules would have succeeded in this undertaking without any trouble, had not Juno suddenly remembered his existence, and resolved to continue her never entirely forgotten persecutions. In the guise of an Amazon, she mingled among the women, and artfully spread the report that Hercules had really come to kidnap their queen, and that the pretended quest of the girdle was a mere excuse, and only intended to distract their attention from his real purpose. The Amazons yielded implicit belief to these rumors, flew to arms, and surrounded their queen. The Amazons array their ranks, in painted arms of radiant sheen, around Hippolyte, the queen. 
The assembled force then attacked Hercules, who met their onslaught single-handedly, defeated them, and finally bore away the prize he had risked so much to obtain. It was on his homeward journey from this expedition that he saved Hision, Laomedon's daughter, from the jaws of a sea monster who was about to devour her as he had devoured many a fair Trojan maid before. Arithius, well pleased with the manner in which Hercules had accomplished eight out of the twelve tasks, bade him now go forth and slay the dangerous, brazen-clawed birds which hovered over the stagnant waters of Lake Stymphalus. The poison arrows now served him in a good stead and enabled him to put a speedy end to the whole flock. Hercules was next told to capture the divine cattle of Gerinus, a giant of Erythia. On his way home with this marvelous herd, Hercules paused on Mount Aventi where, during the night, the loathsome giant Cacus stole some of his cows, to punish him for his theft. Hercules forced his way into the cave, attacked him, and after a memorable encounter, slew him. The animals were soon after delivered into the hands of Erythius, who then sent Hercules in search of the golden apples of the Hesperides. This commission sadly perplexed Hercules, for he did not know in what portion of the world he would find these apples, which had been given to Juno as a wedding present, and which she had entrusted to the care of Hesperides, daughters of the Hesperus, gods of the West. After numerous journeys and many inquiries, Hercules discovered that these maidens had carried these apples off to Africa, hung them on a tree in their garden, and placed the dragon Ladon at its foot to guard their treasures night and day. Unfortunately, no one could tell Hercules in what part of Africa the Garden of Hesperides might be situated, so he set out at a venture, determined to travel about until he gained some information. On his way, he met with many adventures and saw many strange sights. For instance, he first met the nymphs of the Eridanus River, and questioning them about the golden apples, was told to consult old Nereus, god of the sea, who would probably be able to give him some information on the subject. Hercules, having surprised this aged divinity while asleep on the seashore, held him fast, in spite of the multitudinous transformations he underwent in the vain hope of frightening his would-be interlocutor away. In answer to Hercules' question, he finally very reluctantly bade him seek Prometheus, who alone would be able to direct him aright. In obedience to this advice, Hercules went to the Caucasian mountains where, on the brink of a mighty precipice, he found Prometheus, still bound with adamantine chains and still a prey to the ravenous vulture, to spring up the mountainside, kill the cruel bird, snap the adamantine chains, and set free the benefactor of all mankind was the work of but a few minutes for such a hero as Hercules, and in gratitude for the deliverance he had so long sought in vain, Prometheus directed Hercules to his brother Atlas, telling him he would be sure to know where the apples could be found. Hercules wended his way to Africa, where Atlas dwelt, and on his way passed through that land of diminutive race of men called pygmies, who were so small that they lived in a constant dread of their neighbors, so much larger and stronger than they, and of the cranes, which passed over their country in great flocks, and sometimes alighted to devour their harvests. To guard against these constant inroads, the pygmies finally accepted the services of Antaeus, a giant son of Gaia, who generously offered to defend them against all their enemies. When these little people, therefore, saw Hercules' mighty form looming up in the dim distance, they called aloud for fear, and bade Antaeus go forth and kill the new invader, who, they wrongly fancied, had evil designs against them. Proud of his strength, Antaeus went to meet Hercules, and defied him. A fierce struggle was the immediate result of this challenge, and as the combatants were of equal size and strength, the victory seemed very certain. At last, Hercules felt his great strength begin to fail, and noticed that every time his adversary touched the ground, he seemed to renew his vigor. He therefore resolved to try and win by strategy, and watching his opportunity, seized Antaeus round the waist, raised him from the ground, and held him aloft in his powerful embrace. The giant struggled with all his might to get free, but Hercules held him fast, and felt him grow weaker and weaker, now that he was no longer sustained by his mother Earth, from whom he 
derived all his strength, until at last his struggle ceased, and he hung limp and lifeless in Hercules' crushing embrace. Lifts proud Antaeus from his mother plains, and with strong grasp the struggling giant strains. Back falls his fainting head and clammy hair, writhe his weak limbs and flits his life in air. Now that the gigantic defender of the pygmies no longer blocked his way, Hercules traveled onward in search of Atlas, whom he finally found supporting the heavens on his broad shoulders. Atlas listened attentively to all Hercules had to say, declared he knew where the apples could be found, and promised to get them if the hero would only relieve him of his burden for a little while. Glad to accomplish his purpose so easily, Hercules allowed the burden of the heavens to be transferred to his shoulders, and Atlas hastened off to fulfill his part of the agreement. From afar, the giant saw the golden fruit glittering in the sunshine. Stealthily he drew near, entered the gardens, slew the dragon in his sleep, plucked the apples, and returned unmolested to the place where he had left Hercules. But his steps became slower and slower, and as he neared the hero, he could not help thinking with horror of the burden he must so soon resume, and bear for centuries, perhaps without relief. This thought oppressed him. Freedom was so sweet that he resolved to keep it, and coolly stepping up to Hercules, announced that he would carry the golden apples to Erythius and leave him to support the heavens in his stead. Feigning a satisfaction which was, he was very far from feeling, Hercules acquiesced, but detained Atlas for a moment, asking him to hold the heavens until he could place a cushion on his shoulders. Good-natured, as giants proverbially are, Atlas threw the apples on the grass beside him and assumed the incumbent weight. But Hercules, instead of preparing to resume it, picked up the apples, leaving Atlas alone, in the same plight as he had found him, there to remain until some more compassionate hero should come and set him free. There Atlas, son of great Iapetus, with head inclined and ever-during arms, sustains the spacious heavens. It was during the course of one of his mighty labors that Hercules, with one wrench of his powerful arm, tore a cleft in the mountains and allowed the waters of the sea to flow into Oceanus. And ever since, the rocks on either side of the Strait of Gibraltar have borne the name Hercules' Pillars. The twelfth and last task appointed by Erythius was the most difficult of all to perform. Hercules was commanded to descend into Hades and bring up the dog Cerberus, securely bound. But for the last to Pluto's drear abode, through the dark jaws of Ternus he went to drag the triple-headed dog to light. This command, like all others, was speedily obeyed, but Erythius was so terrified at the aspect of the triple-headed dog, from the foam of whom was dripping jaws of nightshade sprang, that he took refuge in a huge jar and refused to come out until Hercules had carried the monster back to his cave. The Olympian Games The twelve appointed labors were finished, the time of bondage was ended, and Hercules, a free man, could wander at his own sweet will and enjoy the happiness of freedom. A roaming existence had, from force of habit, become a necessity, so the hero first journeyed to Olympia, where he instituted games to be celebrated every fifth year in honor of Jupiter, his father. Thence he wandered from place to place, doing good, and came to the house of Admetus, where he was surprised to find all the court in mourning. His sympathetic inquiries soon brought forth a full account of Asceta's sacrifice of his own life to ensure the immortality of her husband. The hero's heart was touched by the king's loneliness, and he again braved the terrors of Hades brought Alcestis back from the grave and restored her to her husband's arms. Hercules took a prominent part in many heroic enterprises. Among others, he joined in the Argonautic expedition, in the battle between the centaurs and the Lepithae, in the war of the gods and giants, and in the first siege of Troy, which proved successful. But the hero, although so lately escaped from servitude, was soon obliged to return into bondage, for in a fit of anger he slew a man and was condemned by the assembled gods to serve Omphale, queen of Lydia, for a certain time. No great deeds were now required of Hercules, whose strength was derided by his new mistress, and who, governing him easily by his admiration for her, 
made him submit to occupations unworthy of a man, and while he was busy spinning, decked herself in his lion skin and brandished his renowned club. His lion spoils the laughing fair demands and gives the distaff to his awkward hands. However unworthy these tasks may have been for such a hero, they prove very agreeable indeed to Hercules, who, having fallen in love with his new mistress, seemed to wish nothing better than to remain her slave forever and end his days in idleness and pleasure. Great labors were awaiting his mighty arm, however, and the gods at the appointed time freed him from his bondage to the Lydian queen and bade him go forth and do all the good in his power. In the course of his wanderings, Hercules next met Dianaria, daughter of Aeneas, and having fallen in love with her, expressed a desire to marry her. But unfortunately, another suitor, the river god Achilles, had already won the father's consent. Achilles came, the river god, to ask a father's voice and snatched me to his arms. So sure was the suitor of his attractions that he did not even deem it necessary to secure the maiden's good graces. And when Hercules made known his love, she immediately promised to marry him. If he would only free her from the lover, her father would fain force upon her. Delighted to be able to win his bride and punish his rival at the same time, Hercules challenged Achilles, and now began a wrestling match, the fame of which has come down to us through all the intervening centuries. Achilles was an opponent worthy of Hercules, and besides, took advantage of his power to change his form at will, further to perplex and harass the sturdy hero. At last, he assumed the shape of a bull, and with lowered horns rushed toward Hercules, intending to toss him aside. The hero, skillfully avoiding his first onset, seized him by one of his great thick-set horns and held it so firmly that all the brawl's efforts to free himself from the powerful grasp were in vain until the horn broke. The goddess of plenty, the Attican Fortuna, a witness of this strange combat, appropriated the broken horn, stuffed her treasures in its hollow, and was so pleased with the effect that she decreed it should henceforth be one of her attributes. The fight, only temporarily suspended, was now resumed with redoubled hour for each of the lovers was intent upon winning the hand of the fair Dianaria. Warm and more warm the conflict rose, dire was the noise of rattling bows. Of front to front opposed and hand to hand, deep was animated strife for love, for conquest, and for life. The victory, though long and certain, finally rested with Hercules, who triumphantly departed with his hard-won bride, for his destiny would not permit him to tarry long in any place. Instead of wandering alone now, with none to cheer or sympathize, Hercules had Dianaria ever at his side, for many days they came to the river Evanus, whose usually shallow and peaceful waters were swollen and turbid, for violent rainstorms had recently swept over the portion of the country. Paused for a moment to contemplate the stream and glanced about for some safe mode to transport Dianaria across. While he was thus considering, a centaur by the name of Nessus came to his assistance and proposed to carry the fair young bride to the other shore in complete safety if she would but consent to mount upon his broad back. The hoary centaur, who was wont for hire, to bear the traveler over the rapid flood, of deep Evanus, now with oars or sail, he stemmed the torrent, but with nervous arm, opposed and passed at me, when first a bride, I left my hos father's hospital roof, with my Eclides, in his arms he broed, athwart the current. Hercules, only too glad to avail himself of the centaur's kind offer of assistance, quickly helped Dianaria to mount, saw them descend into the water, and prepared to follow, holding his bow and arrows aloft in one hand, and breasting the waves with the other. Now, the centaur Nessus did not often have the good fortune to carry such a pretty passenger as Dianaria over the river, and as he swam he made up his mind to gallop off with her as soon as he reached the opposite shore. All his strength and energy, therefore, were called into requisition, and when he reached the shore, instead of pausing to allow his fair burden to dismount, he set off as fast as he could run. 
A loud shriek from Dionaria attracted Hercules' attention, and a second later, one of his poison arrows had brought the would-be ravisher to the ground, pierced through the heart. With dying accents, the centaur Nessus professed repentance and bade Dionaria take his robe, but slightly stained with the blood which gushed from the wound inflicted by the poison arrow, and keep it carefully, for it had magic power, and if she ever found her husband's love waning, he assured her that, could she but induce him to put it on, all his early affection would revive as pure and fervent as during their honeymoon. Take this white robe. It is costly. See, my blood has stained it but a little. I did wrong. I know it and repent me. If there come a time when he grows cold, for all the race of heroes wander, nor can any love fix theirs for long, take it and wrap him in it, and he shall love again. Dianaria gratefully accepted the preferred gift, and promised to treasure it up carefully, although she sincerely hoped she would never be called to make use of it. Years passed by. Hercules often left Dianaria to deliver the oppressed and relieve the suffering, for people came from great distances to ask for his aid, and although his absences were sometimes prolonged, he always returned to her side, as loving as ever, and she had no cause for complaint. Finally, duty took him back to the court of Erethes, where he beheld Eol, whom he had seen and loved in the beginning of his career, but whom he had been obliged to leave to fulfill his arduous tasks. She was still young and charming, and his first glance into her sweet face rekindled all his former passion. Day after day he lingered by her side, forgetful of duty, Dianaria, and all but his first dream of love and happiness. When absent, Dianaria was wont to hear rumors of his heroic achievements, but on this occasion the only report which reached her ear was that he had returned to his allegiance to his first love, and this roused her jealousy, so long dormant. Hercules was wending his way homeward again, and her heart bounded with joy, but only to sink more heavily when told that he was accompanied by Eol in a numerous train. Then she remembered the long-forgotten gift of the centaur. With trembling hands, she sought the glittering robe, gave it to a messenger, and bade him hasten to meet Hercules and prevail upon him to wear it for his triumphant return. The messenger, Lycus, hastened to do her bidding, and Dionaria waited with fast-beating heart for the success of her adventure. I only wish the charm may be of power to win Alcides from this virgin's love and bring him back to Dionaria's arms. Lycus acquitted himself faithfully of his errand, Hercules, viewing the costly garment, and anxious to appear to his best advantage before the bright eyes of Eol, immediately donned the richly embroidered robe. He had no sooner put it on than the centaur's poisoned blood began its deadly work. First, he experienced a burning, stinging sensation which ran like fire through every vein. Vainly, he tried to tear off the fatal garment. It clung to his limbs, and the poison ate its way onto his flesh until the pain was greater than he could bear. In his rage at the trick which had been played upon him, he seized Lycus, the unfortunate bearer of the poison robe, by the foot, flung him from the heights of Mount Ada down to the sea, where he perished, and Lycus from the top of Ada threw him into the Eolbeck sea. Then, resolved to end these unendurable torments by death worthy of his whole life, Hercules called his servants and bade them build his funeral pyre on the mountain peak, but they, in tears, refused to obey, for they could not bear the thought of parting with their beloved master. Commands and entreaties alike failed to move them, so Hercules climbed up the mountainside alone, tore up the huge oaks by their roots, flung them one upon the other until he had raised a mighty pile, upon which he stretched his colossal pain-racked limbs and bade his friend Philistus set fire to the stupendous mass. At first, Philistus also refused to do his bidding, but, bribed by the promise of the world-renowned poisoned arrows, he finally consented to do as Hercules wished, and the red flames rose higher and higher, the wood crackled and burned, and the hero was soon enveloped in sheets of flame which purged him from all mortality. Then Jupiter came down from his glorious abode, caught the noble soul in his mighty arms, and bore it off to Olympus, there to dwell in happiness forever with Hebe, the fair goddess of youth, 
whose hand was given him in marriage. Till the god, the earthly part forsaken, from the man in flames asunder taken, drank the heavenly ether's pure breath, joyous in the new unwanted lightness, earth's dark, heavy burden lost in death, high Olympus gives harmonious greeting, to the hall where reigns his sire adored, youth's bright goddess with a blush at meeting, gives the nectar to her lord. Hercules, the special divinity of athletic sports and of strength, was principally worshipped by young men. He is generally represented in art as a tall, powerfully built man with a small bearded head, a lion skin carelessly thrown over his shoulder and leaning upon a massive club. It is said that some of the games celebrated at Olympia were held in his honor, although originally instituted by him in honor of Jupiter, his father. The Nemean games, celebrated in the forest of Nemea, the scene of his first great labor, were the principal games held in Greece in commemoration of his noble deeds and early death. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. These were the stories of the labors of Hercules.